I wanted to uh, start off by kind of hearkening back a few years. Uh, it was Tuesday, Tuesday morning. It was a regular Tuesday morning, like every other Tuesday morning. For me, I had rolled into my office at about 9 o'clock, and our receptionist, who was a sweet Canadian lady named Linda, she was crying at her desk when I got to work. And I said, Linda, what's going on? I'm like, what's wrong? It's very weird. She didn't typically cry. It was a good job. But through a sob, she told me that a plane had just slammed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. So we were standing up there for a second. We're trying to figure out what had happened because, as some of you might remember, at that moment, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know if it was a terrorist attack. We actually thought just a plane had gone off course and bumped into the building. We thought that this was just some kind of tragic accident. So we were watching on the computer screen, and we saw the second plane hit the South Tower. That's the one that most of us remember seeing firsthand because we were watching after the, the first plane hit. And, and that image will, will be forever seared into my brain. I just can see it over and over again. Well, by the time I got home from work that day, my, my boys, my sons, had already talked about the attack in their classrooms. At the time, they were five and almost seven, and they gave me their version of their understanding of what had happened, which was pretty, pretty accurate. And actually, they shared with me that they had both prayed again to make Jesus their Lord and Savior just because, I mean, they were terrified, and that's what people were doing. Well, as you might remember, that Sunday, the church was fuller than it ever had been. Even on Christmas and Easter, I mean, the church was standing room only packed. A phenomenon which lasted a grand total of two weeks. But anyway, at that time, everything was so uncertain. Everyone was so afraid. And instinctively, it seemed, everyone declared their dependence on God. And everyone turned to God for comfort and assurances. You, you've heard there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Well, it was that kind of moment for all of us. I'm talking about this because, of course, as you know, this week, this coming Saturday, we hit the 20th anniversary of that horrific event, 20 years. It's an event that changed the world. Um, a few years ago, we got to go to the uh, museum in New York, the, the memorial, and uh, it's, it's just overwhelming. And you don't even remember, even if you were there then and you remember what happened, you don't remember because, wow, just the details and, and seeing all the stuff it was really, it was really a, a powerful thing I would recommend if you ever get to New York to do that. Now, for the younger people, the younger folks, 9-11 is and will remain just an event that you've read about or you've heard about in history or maybe you've seen a documentary. But for others, 9-11 is a day that just is etched into our psyche. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of what makes us think the things we think. And now, 20 years later, we know a lot more than we did back then. Now we know exactly what happened. Now we know why it happened. And now we're kind of picking up the things that we can learn from that tragedy. Well, not coincidentally, the week of commemoration that we have ahead of us, so I'm pretty sure we're going to see a lot of commemorative TV shows and specials and things like that, that actually fits right into our message series, Recovery Road. Because in this series, we've been giving consideration to the question, given the level of division that we're currently experiencing in our country, what role can the people of Jesus play 
in returning to the principles that made us a nation in the first place. In other words, what can we do as Christian Americans, remember we talked about that, not as American Christians, but as Christian Americans, is a priority issue. What can we do to hasten, to speed along the American recovery apart from continuing to look to the politicians whom we've elected to represent our interests, but apparently have kind of lost the thread. They've lost sight of that mission. Because you see, over the last few weeks, we have started to notice that we, like we, actually bear more responsibility for the state of our world than we might have initially thought. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if, if you've recognized the sin nature with which we were all born, if you've recognized that human nature that drives us towards selfish sin and that requires a savior to redeem us, and you've recognized that notwithstanding that inherent sinfulness, Jesus loves us anyway. And out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected forever to God if we'll just turn from our natural self and understanding how it all played out, how Jesus paid for our sins when he died on the cross, when he was put into the tomb, and then he rose from the dead, ascending to heaven and promising to return one day to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. If you've devoted your life to his lordship by accepting God's free gift of an eternal life connected to him... If you've done that, if you could only not lose sight of the foundational things that Jesus taught us, if we could all do that, we wouldn't be in this divided situation in which we currently find ourselves. And in fact, we as Christian Americans would have the ability to stand at the, at the forefront, at the vanguard, and help our entire area move towards recovery. So now, a few weeks ago, just as a brief review, we started off by seeing that recovery begins with we, not they. We don't have to wait for somebody else to do something. We need to figure out what we can do now. And then we drilled down and discovered that recovery can only begin after we take a fearless moral inventory. In other words, we can't get to where we want to be until we know where we need to start. And then last week, we talked about our national leaders, and that was kind of fun because we got to pick on the national leaders. And we saw that we need leaders who are as committed to maintaining their moral authority as they are to maintaining their jobs. We need leaders in our country who are willing to walk their talk, to keep their promises, and to have that moral authority. Now, regarding our national leaders, what is the one thing that they all have in common? They were elected, right? They didn't just walk in there because they wanted to. Who put them there? We did, okay? We elected them. So once again, all roads lead back to us. We have no one to blame but ourselves. So as we continue on in this, in this series, our recovery principle is going to be this. Recovery begins with a declaration of dependence. Okay, so here's how that works. If you've ever recovered from anything, anything significant in your life, you've most likely reached a point of helplessness where you just threw up your hands and you said, oh, I can't do this by myself. I, I, I can't do this alone. I need somebody's help. I need God to help me. Now, I, I've talked to a lot of you over the years and, and the others of you I haven't talked to probably could figure something out as you 
see me walk around, I, I kind of move weird because I have issues with my back. And after decades of landing hard after being thrown to the ground in jiu-jitsu, which wasn't probably the wisest thing to do, or doing heavy squats in the gym with terrible form, or spending five years carrying around my huge children in one of those backpacks, you know, that was really poorly designed, and I always felt like I was running some kind of outrigger canoe because they would hang out this way, and I'd have to go back this way, and that all left me with a number of, of ruptured and herniated discs, as well as a spinal column that is out of whack and crumbling away, and it's, it's lovely, yay. But I'll tell you, because of that, there's just not a minute of the day that I'm unaware of the pain that it causes. By the way, I'm not seeking sympathy. Don't, don't say, oh, I'm so sorry, or all that stuff. You don't have to. I'm just setting up a story I'm about to tell you, but you know, so just a, kind of a reminder. Anyway, almost four years ago for me, things became urgent. My pain went from ever-present, always there, to excruciating, to you just can't ignore it. Beth tells people that if you saw a dog in as much pain as I was in, you would put the dog down and you'd be doing it a favor. So, uh, now when she reminds, when your wife reminds you of that while you're in the pain, it's hard to sleep, but anyway. So as I was waiting for my first surgery and then my second surgery, I kind of hit that point. I hit that point of utter helplessness. I was just helpless. I couldn't walk on my own. I couldn't sit in a chair. I couldn't lie down in a bed. I had trouble breathing. I had trouble sleeping. I had trouble thinking. And the only thing I could do was pray. And I prayed constantly. I never stopped. But here was my prayer. God, help! That was my prayer. It's my whole prayer. I need your help. If you've recovered from any kind of injury or you've had any kind of addiction, or any kind of habit that you've had to break out of, or if you've recovered from your guilt or your shame, there is a point in that recovery where you throw up your hands and you go, I can't do this by myself. For many people, that's the moment. That's the beginning of recovery. Now, if you're with us here on site, if you're with us online, and you find yourself in a place like that, today might be helpful for you. If you're not currently in a place like that, I would ask that you kind of try to pay attention anyway because you're going to be there one day. Everybody experiences something like that eventually. At some point in your life, you're going to need to recover from something and then you'll need to declare your dependence on God. However, in the present moment, in the world as it is today, that might be easier said than done. You see, in our current cultural environment, I'm sure you guys know this, Many people have a huge problem when we believers acknowledge our need for and our dependence upon God. It's getting harder and harder to say out loud. More and more of our national leaders, who by the way are believers who, who have given their lives to Jesus, they just leave him out of important conversations that they have. And people have gotten so weird about talking about God. It seems as if the notion of the separation between church and state, which it, by the way is horribly misunderstood by so many people, it's been kind of repurposed to rid all polite conversation of any reference to God. That's not what it means. By the way, if you want a, just a short primer on the origin of that famous phrase and how it's been applied, come see me afterwards and I'll explain it to you. I don't want to bore everybody with it now, but briefly, we have been misled 
so long to believe that we shouldn't talk in public about God, or more precisely, we shouldn't talk in public about religion. You know, you've heard before, what are the things you don't talk about in public? You don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, and all, which are the things we love to talk about. But anyway, we're not allowed to do that. We can't talk about that, and we've been doing that for so long that we've forgotten about God's importance in our lives. And as a result, declaring our dependence upon God has become taboo. It, it kind of freaks people out. Well, I'm going to God for my decisions, or I consider God in all my decisions. They go, woo, you must be a crazy person. Now, I'll tell you, for myself, I have a number of friends and a number of relatives who don't talk to me anymore, who won't interact with me anymore, because they, air quotes here, know what I do for a living, and they assume that they can't be around me because they know how I think which they don't, but that's what they assume. They think I'll judge them, or at least I will just only talk about God with them. To them and many other people, being vocal about one's faith in God is the worst social sin that anyone can commit. I have been disinvited or not invited to family weddings. I've been not invited to friend gatherings because of that perception. Now, on a community level, many people at even believers now, are under the impression that speaking about God or even referring to God or referring to a thing of God like a, like a church community is, is something that makes you undesirable or unmentionable so people just don't talk about it anymore. It's as if speaking about God and talking about your church community is unwelcome in polite society. Now, here's a little example. We've been in this new church building for going on three years. It took us until one month ago to convince the school that we share the property with to put us on the permanent sign to the entrance. It has taken that long. They were worried that our mere existence, pointing that out, pointing out that we share a campus with people who follow God would offend some of their school families. And they don't believe uh, that, 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 to, to offend the school families that don't believe. And the school said, well, we just don't want to get sued. Incidentally, by the way, in America, at least for the moment, there is no actionable claim against a church putting a sign on its own property. Okay, so that's still legal in America, just so you know. So when it comes to the people of God declaring their dependence upon him, the mood in the secular world is one of extreme caution and concern. I have so many people that I know that just consider evangelical Christians or biblical Christians to be in the same category as, as radical Muslims and radical Islamists. I've heard that over and over again. So when it comes to the people of God declaring their dependence upon him, the mood of the secular world is caution. Now, that's even true, true even though in 1962 and 1965, the Supreme Court actually ruled that prayer is permitted in schools. Did you know that? Prayer is permitted in public schools as long as it isn't school officials leading the prayer or promoting the prayer in their official capacity. Everybody who goes to ABC High School must believe in Jesus. They're not allowed to do that. Principal gets up and says, all my students stand up because we're going to pray to Jesus. You can't do that. But students can pray they can pray at their valedictory speeches. They can pray at graduation. Teachers can do the same thing, just not in their official capacity. People don't know that. See, as a result, the vast majority of public schools in America have chosen to ban all talk of God altogether. 
So this means that we've arrived in a place in America where we've collectively made the decision that we think it is more important to avoid talking about God lest we make anyone uncomfortable or heaven forfend hurt anyone's feelings. We think it's more important to avoid that than it is to avoid offending God by our lack of attention and devotion. So stated in the affirmative, we have come to the place in America where we'd much rather, on a national level, potentially offend God by not giving him the credit or the thanks that he's owed or asked for his help than potentially offend any people who don't even believe in him, which is bizarre at the very least. Now, that situation constitutes a radical departure for America. This kind of anti-religious sentiment was unheard of, totally unheard of, for the first 75% of our nation's existence. That's pretty amazing. America was, you can read this in your history books, legitimately formed and founded upon the principle of freedom to worship God and not freedom from those who worship God. You guys know that, right? You know, the, the colonists came here from England because they were not allowed to worship God in the way that they wanted to worship God. And we need to put an end to this. But it's not going to be easy. By the way, you know the U.S. has a national motto. You know we have a national motto as a country. You know this. Here's what it is. It's not one, by the way. It's, okay. In God we trust, right? It's not a secret. It's literally written on every piece of currency, every bill, every coin in America. If you're carrying money, you have it in your pocket. That's our national motto. Little history, it was adopted unanimously by Congress in 1956. Okay, that's a long time ago, and those were bad days, blah, blah, blah. It was reaffirmed in 2011. It wasn't unanimous, but the vote in Congress was 396 to 9. Okay, so pretty unanimous. Now, can you imagine if that came up for a vote today in 2021? You can't even imagine they would vote on it today, let alone how it would turn out. I imagine that the mere suggestion of a bill like that would cause a revolution in Washington, D.C. So today, notwithstanding the fact that in God we trust is our national motto, we are busy as a nation distancing ourselves from God, and we're taking a risk if we proclaim that we're dependent upon God. So we've been resigned to only hearing about God when our public officials kind of give him an insincere shout-out, right? They give their little thing, and then they say at the end, and may God bless the United States of America. That's kind of what you get from all our politicians. That's not good. And as long as things continue to go this way, we'll never be able to declare our dependence on God as a nation. Now, on 9-11, there was a national acknowledgement, a national belief that no matter how strong a nation we are, no matter how wealthy a nation we are, no matter how much we've done, there's something in us that instinctively knows that there are things beyond our control and that we need God to guide us through and rescue us from those things. In the 20 years since 9-11, we've all but lost our national connection to God. Our churches are less full. Our people are less bold. Our sense of God is less prominent. And our nation has suffered as a result. So the question becomes, what do we do, right? Is there anything that can guide us back, guide our nation back into fellowship with the God of the universe? Is there anything? 
If you guessed, yes, you are correct. Thank you over here on my right. You see, there's a story in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that illustrates for us the way that our country could be if we return to God. It's a story that shows us the power and correlation between a nation's faith and God's blessing. It's a story of a nation willing to humble itself and say, no matter what we've accomplished, no matter where we are, no matter how successful we've become, we will always need God. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give everybody the context of the story, and then we'll read our Bible verses together and find out what we're talking about. Sound good? All right, let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we uh, open up your word and we begin to study how you have impacted our people, impacted our predecessors, impacted the world in your image and honor, God, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds so we too can understand our place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we go. This is a story that takes place a long time ago, roughly 3,000 years ago in the 900s BC. All right, so at that time, Israel was being ruled by its third king. He was a guy by the name of, I think you probably have heard of him, King Solomon. All right? Now, King Solomon was the son of the famous King David, who was known as, King Solomon was known as the wisest man who ever lived. Now, the story that we're going to talk about took place during what they call the Golden Age of Israel. See, during Solomon's reign, Israel was the world's superpower. Israel was wealthy. Israel was powerful. Israel had an army capable of maintaining both its wealth and its power. And Solomon was so wise that he was sought out by other kings, other monarchs, who wished to sit at his feet and ask him difficult questions. Can you imagine other world leaders coming to one world leader and sitting at his feet or her feet and listening to them answer questions? That would never happen. But that's what happened then. Solomon had wisdom. Solomon had wealth. Solomon had power. His kingdom was quite successful. And it was during this high watermark that Solomon completed his magnificent temple. That's the temple of Solomon, the temple in Jerusalem. Currently, the only piece of that temple that remains is what? The western wall or the wailing wall. That was a piece of the outside wall of the temple compound, and that's the only piece that is left. It was destroyed in 70 AD originally by the Romans. Now, Solomon's temple was opulent. It was stunningly beautiful. So in about 977 BC, Solomon called for a massive dedication service for the temple. He invited people from all over, from far and wide. You can read about all of that if you want in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, on the day of the dedication of the temple, Jerusalem was packed. And people came from all over. The temple grounds were loaded with people. People were on the rooftops. People were on the patios. People were out on the plaza. Everyone present was there to witness the dedication of this magnificent facility to God. And it's in within... This context that we find a powerful illustration of a leader who understands, a leader who gets it, a leader who comprehends the vital connection between political power and the humility required when you have political power. So, if you want, grab your Bibles or pull up your Bible apps or look on the screen. We're going to pick up the story in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. So, let's take a look. 
Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel. Okay, so in other words, he goes out and stands where everybody can see him. And he spread out his hands like this. Spread out his hands. Ezra, the Jewish scribe and priest who most people believe was the author of 2 Chronicles, then backs up a bit. So he starts off by telling you what Solomon did as he went out to address the crowd. And then he kind of backs up a bit in the story so he can give you some background, okay? So he's given us a little bit more detail. So here's what he does in the next verse. Now, Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. Okay, how tall is a cubit? About a foot and a half. Okay, so essentially it was a fairly large platform that was roughly five feet high, give or take. And he placed it in the center of the outer court. All right, so here's what's happening. Solomon places this bronze platform in the middle of the outer court so that everyone can see what's happening. So picture Solomon the king, the wisest, wealthiest man in all of history, the son of David, one of the most sought after people in the world at that time sets up this platform so that everyone could see him. And what does he do? He gets up on it. He stands on the platform. All right? And then standing on the platform where everybody could see him, Solomon does something that is unthinkable. What does he do? He kneels down. He knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel. Why is that unthinkable? Kings didn't kneel in public especially in front of their public. You didn't like your people to see you bow to anyone. So kings didn't do this sort of thing. That's what Solomon did. But Solomon, instead of giving a speech, instead of doing something to draw attention to himself, Solomon, and remember, the country's facing no problems at this time. The country's having no crises at this time. They didn't need anything specific from God. But Solomon gets up in front of the whole crowd and kneels down. Now, the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm going to tell you, I think it's accurate. When Solomon knelt down, when the king knelt down, everybody knelt down. The entire crowd knelt down. And by kneeling down, Solomon made a very public pronouncement. He said, even though I'm the king, I am not the most powerful being in the world. I serve as king under a much higher authority. Solomon was a king that acknowledged a higher power. Solomon was a king that ruled under the authority and the sovereignty of God. And in that act, Solomon declared his humility. He declared his dependence on God. He bowed down before God. In front of the entire assembly of Israel, he spread out his hands toward heaven. What a great picture that is. And then Solomon prayed, and his prayer was essentially this. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. God, please fill this temple. Please bless your people. And when your people are disobedient, please discipline us. But when you discipline us, when we cry out for help, please hear our prayers. God, please don't abandon us when we sin. Please don't abandon us when we disobey your law. And God, when we do sin and when we do disobey your law, and when we notice the pestilence and plagues and we notice our enemies closing in on us, please move us to repentance. And God, when we repent, hear our prayers and deliver us and keep your promises with the nation of Israel. Okay, that's essentially what he prayed. In both Solomon's kneeling and his praying, he declared his dependence on God. Even though he was the most powerful man in the world that day. 
under Solomon, Israel wanted for nothing, but that didn't stop Solomon from understanding that he was dependent upon God, and Israel was at its most dependent on God as well, even though it was incredibly successful. But it didn't end there. Because in the middle of this prayer, then Solomon turns and he prays for us. Now, you need to understand this. See, at that moment in history, Israel was right there, right in the middle of God's will, as we say. And, and God had made Israel the world's superpower. But, God, but Solomon's wisdom revealed to him that God's plan was bigger than Israel, bigger than any one nation. God's plan actually had more to do with the other nations, in Hebrew, the word is goyim, it's Gentiles. It had more to do with the goyim than it had to do with the nation of Israel. So here's what he prayed. This is 2 Chronicles 6.32. As for foreigners, and again, you could read that as Gentiles, who do not belong to your people Israel, so as for the others, as for the Gentiles, when they come and pray toward this temple, hear them from heaven, your dwelling place. How about that? See, it was, it was thought that God's temple, Solomon understood that God wasn't confined to the temple or to one building. So he's explaining to everyone who thinks he is, okay, hold on a minute. He says, when the foreigner comes to you, do whatever he asks as well. God, don't just hear Israel's prayer. Please hear the prayer of any nation, any person that recognizes that you are the one true living and sovereign God, hear their prayer so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people, Israel. That's really cool. Solomon recognized that God was working beyond the borders of Israel, that God was at work in the world. And Solomon prayed, God, anybody from any nation that recognizes you, hear their prayers and honor their prayers in such a way that you continue to draw to yourself the power and the glory that you deserve. So when the day was over and Solomon went to sleep and in the middle of the night, God spoke to him. Here's what happened. Ready? Here we go. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and, the royal, and at the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night. So Solomon's having this dream. It appears to him at night. And here's what God says to Solomon. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. So God tells Solomon, this is the place where I want the people of Israel to worship me. And then God said, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. In other words, when the nation's under judgment, when the nation has been disobedient, when the nation has been, has been disciplined because they've abandoned my laws and my decrees, when that happens, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. Okay, you've all heard this verse before. Now in that moment, God confirms what Solomon had asked for, what Solomon had hoped for, that there was a relationship between the obedience of a nation and specifically the obedience of the leaders of the nation and God's blessing. So there's a correlation. There's a relationship. Now, 
In order to understand this verse in its proper context, don't lose sight of something that's very significant. And this is where we sometimes lose our track here. This was God's promise to Solomon, okay? This was God's promise to the nation of Israel. This was not, I'm going to say it again, this was not a specific promise given every nation on earth, including ours. This is not a promise specifically for any other nation than Israel, okay? So you can't just take this verse here and plop it down on the United States and say this is what it means. People do that all the time. It's not biblically accurate, but it is a principle. It is an understanding that gives us a general nexus, a definite connection between obedience and blessing that we can use, okay? So if we see the principle here, the principle is when we turn to God, when we obey God, God blesses. But it's not the same as the promise given to Israel. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, a lot of people here can confirm that that works. A lot of people here can look back at times, I know I can, times in my life when I was running from God and my life was a mess, but then you experience this turnaround, this about face, when you stopped running from God and you started running back to God. When you began to pray, when you began to read your Bible, when you began to obey, guess what happened? Things got better. And what's true for individuals is also true for families. And what's true for families is also true for communities. And what's true for communities is also true for nations. And this promise that God gave to Israel, if you'll obey me and follow me, I'll bless and protect you, that's a principle that is true for all nations as well. And the reason we know that is because of a verse I just read a minute ago. Let's go back to it in verse 33, chapter 6. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people, Israel. Now that's God's promise and that's our challenge. And that's why it doesn't make any sense for our national leaders to distance themselves from a God that most of them believe in, or at least they say they do. But because of the times we live in, they've grown uncomfortable talking about it publicly. There is a relationship between a nation's humility, a nation's obedience, and a nation's dependence, and the blessing and presence of God. Many of our national leaders in years past clearly understood this principle. A long time ago, our leaders were not hesitant at all in recognizing the way that God is the source of both our blessings and our protection. So here's an interesting story. During the Civil War, so 1860s, Iowa Senator James Harlan made a proposal to President Lincoln. He told Lincoln that he was presenting a resolution to the Senate calling for a national day of prayer and fasting in the North. Remember, the country was split, so he's talking about the North. So check this out. During the darkest days of our nation's history, notwithstanding whatever the Twitterati has to say, during a time when young Americans on both sides of the battle, north and south, were being slaughtered around the clock, the U.S. Senate in the north and President Lincoln uh, wrote up and signed a resolution. As we read through it, I want you to try to imagine passing a resolution like this in today's supposedly advanced and sophisticated society. So I'm going to show you what the resolution said. Ready? Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God, in all the affairs of men and of nations, has, by a resolution, requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. Now, wait a minute. Let's stop on humiliation because that's one of the words that sticks us. 
It wasn't meant figuratively. In Lincoln's 1864 Thanksgiving proclamation, he told Americans to get down in the dust, pray with your face in the dirt, and give thanks. So the word humiliation was meant to evoke a, a sense of shame and disgust for our national disobedience. Okay, that's the resolution. Let's keep going. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions. You listening to this? This is a government resolution. This is coming from the United States Senate. What happened to separation of church and state? Right? And also, wait a minute. This came from the North. The North passed this resolution. Weren't they in the right in the war against the South? I mean, that's how it turned out, right? I mean, that's what we learned. That's what it was. So why is it calling all Americans, not just the Southerners, who were the, who were the rebels, who were the bad guys, why is it calling on all Americans to confess their sins? It's because the Senate understood. Certainly a relic of days past that the Senate understands anything, but the Senate understood that if God is to grant his blessing to, this, to the, his blessing, then the sins of the entire nation, north and south, needed to be confessed. We keep going. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. Doesn't this sound more like a sermon than a Senate resolution? That genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and, rec and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures. Stop. They mentioned the Holy Scriptures in the Senate. You can't do that. Like, what were they thinking? What's going on here? The Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. That's amazing. That's a quote from the Bible. That's a quote from Psalm 33. A quote from the Bible in a Senate resolution. Can you imagine that? Who'd have thunk it? So let's answer this question. If America, under Abraham Lincoln, one of the greatest presidents in American history, during a time when our nation was divided as never before, and certainly not since. During a time when our nation's very survival was in no way assured. They, a lot of people didn't think the nation would make it. If that nation could humble itself to implore God to rescue them, why can't we? Why can't we do the same thing? See, recovery begins with the declaration of dependence. A declaration of dependence upon God. Recovery begins when we understand that we might end up offending a few people in order to not offend Almighty God. Recovery begins when we can agree with King David and with President Lincoln when they both declared from Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Recovery begins when we can change our national rhetoric from saying things like, we're the United States of America, we ought to be able to figure this out, to saying, we're the United States of America. In God we trust. And by God's grace and with God's help, we will recover. Huge difference. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in his epistle in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Is it then reasonable to assume that God also opposes proud nations? Is it also reasonable to assume that that same grace that's available to humble individuals is going to be available to a nation whose God is the Lord? To the nation that's willing to say, in spite of all we have, in spite of all that we've been blessed with, in spite of all that we've accomplished, we're still no less dependent upon God? So as we wrap up today, my prayer for our nation is that every senator, every congressperson, the president, the vice president, anybody who's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ would be bold enough to step up their declaration of dependence and gratitude to God. It's also my prayer that any who aren't would understand that it is still a value to having these religious people around. Our dependence on God represents a very American value. You've, you've read all back in the days of the founding of America when foreigners, when Europeans would come here and they would see what a, what a religious people we were and what a spiritual people we were. It's a very American value. It's a value to the majority of our people. As we saw 20 years ago in 9-11, when the churches and synagogues were full, when we felt our real dependence upon God like we'd never felt it before. So it's my prayer for our nation that, I hope it's your prayer too, that the dependence that we all carry in our hearts would once again be a part of our national conversation. Because at the end of the day, recovery begins with a public declaration of dependence. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I lift up our community, our Hammock Street Ecclesia. I lift up everyone here. I know that uh, we come from different places and different countries and different political backgrounds. But God, we have the most important thing in common. We all belong to you. We all love you. We've all given our lives to you. We've all understood what it means to be one of your people. God, we know that we don't have to obey, but we get to obey. That it's a privilege, and that privilege has benefits, and those benefits are a life that is life indeed, life to the full. So God, as we continue on from here today, as we continue through the weekend and through this coming week, as we consider the 9-11 tragedy, God, we would ask that you would use us as those shining lights on the hill, those people to whom others look for hope, and that we can point to you as the source of our hope. God, we, we thank you for all that you've done. We praise you for your gifts. And God, we're humbled by the fact that you would even consider using us to further the love that you've shown us. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that you can all join us next week as we continue on in Recovery Road. Have a good Sunday. We'll see you later.